Dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio. With Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. The man whose intelligence I have long admired and often relied upon is that of Dr. Lieutenant Colonel James Carafano, United States Army, retired. He is these days one of the grand poobahs of the Heritage Foundation. He runs its foreign policy and national security work there. He is also a very active contributor, I'm happy to say, to the public policy debate through his writings, both at Heritage and elsewhere. And he's a gracious guest uh, with his time, and we're always delighted to catch up with him. Jim Carafano, welcome back to Securing Freedom Radio. It's good to have you with us, sir. Great to be with you, and thanks for all you do. Thanks for your show and your continued just banging the drum on the importance of providing for the common defense and, and recognizing that freedom isn't free and, and every generation has enormous responsibilities to, to stand up and, and deal with these issues. Otherwise, it just all gets washed away. So thanks for what you do and you've done for so long. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Jim. And uh, back at you. Where to begin, Jim? Uh, so many things. You've served with distinction in the uniform of the United States Army. You've been a speechwriter for the chief of staff of the Army. As a result, you've had a lot of experience with very senior leadership in our military. I guess maybe where I'd start is um, what do you make of today's leadership and the priority that it seems to be giving um, both uh, at the service level and at the level of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to, uh, well, this whole critical race theory agenda that is, it seems, geared towards driving good people out of the military and um, really radicalizing uh, those in uniform uh, along some very problematic lines. Well, I, I, I'm really concerned about this. I, I recently wrote a piece on this for the Washington Times. And of course, this is something that, you know, I was in the military for 25 years. I've been here for like 20 years. And I, throughout my career, I, I've always tracked, you know, military operations and, and something that we call civil military affairs, right? Which is the relationship between the civilian leadership, the political leadership, and the militaries. Because what the United States is really from from the founding of the Constitution, our system is we have civilian command and control of the military. And no, everybody expects that an administration comes in and they have different policies, and that's fine. But what's, what should be impermissible is to inject political issues and politics into military affairs and, and then have an expectation that military leaders would actually be advancing not just your policy agenda, but your political agenda. And military officers who would do that, either because they're just ignorant of the politics of the day, or because they're what we would call careerists, which is they see the advancement of their career as more important than their service to the Constitution. Look, this was an issue in the 70s, I think, coming out of the, the, the post-Vietnam era and the hollow force of the you know Jimmy Carter years. And I thought it was an incredibly poor generation of leadership. That that the, that generation was largely dismissed and replaced uh, in the Reagan years, and which really started a renaissance in, in the U.S. military that made it the most respected institution in America, which it remains to this day. I I really worry about this generation. I they see completely inept. 
they they actually seem to be enabling a political agenda, much of which was just incredibly destabilizing. You mentioned critical race theory, which actually teaches people to be racist. It actually teaches people to discriminate against other people based on the color of their skins. We spent our entire service in the military trying to convince everybody that all you see when you look at another soldier is a uniform. And this actually teaches the opposite of that. So it's completely destructive to good order and discipline. It's actually enabled by the military. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs staff claimed that the senior military officer in the service claimed he'd never even heard of this thing before, which is utter, utter nonsense. And it's just one of a number of issues, uh, the way they're dealing with sexual violence in the military uh, and, 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 and a number of other issues. So there's a whole number of issues stacking up where the senior military leaders seem completely inept. Uh, I... I'm more worried than ever that we are being led by people who aren't focused on the mission of defending Americans. And in an age of great power competition, that's really damn scary. It is indeed. Uh, I want to come to that great power competition in a moment, but just staying with the impact on the, well, both good order and discipline, yes, but but the unit cohesiveness and the readiness of our forces. Uh, as you know, uh, Jim Carfano, there was a report recently done for uh, several members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee by Lieutenant General Robert Schmindel and Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, in which they warned specifically about the Navy that this agenda uh, political correctness uh, is one way of describing it, but I think it's worse than that. It is really imposing, as you say, um, a, a doctrine of, of racism on our armed forces is taking precedence over preparedness for even basic skills like seamanship, let alone warfighting. Does that sound right to you? And if so, what are the implications, not just for the Navy, but if it's happening in other services as well for the defense of our country? Yeah, folks, you definitely read this report. I mean, I was just godsmacked reading it. It was sponsored by Senator Cotton and several other congressional leaders. It, it again, reminds me of many of the things I heard in the 1970s. And, and it, it, you're right, it's a kind of a double threat to the efficiency and effectiveness of the military. One is, it's completely distracting. So, for example, another project that the administration has ongoing is they're, they're rooting out extremists in the military. I mean, so they have an active program essentially evaluating the politics of individual military service members. It's completely ludicrous. Um, th this is actually pitting soldiers against soldiers um, uh, about their, their, their loyalty, their race, how they act. So we're, so the whole idea is you build trust and cohesion. This is actually doing the opposite of that. So that, and, and we see that reflected in the comments in the Navy report. The other one is, of course, is you've got people running around doing all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the core mission of learning how to defend and protect the United States. Um, I saw that myself. I was commissioned in the Army in the 1970s. You're, when you're, you're running around doing these classes and, and doing all this administrative bureaucratic thing, and you're not doing basic skills like how do you drive a ship? How do you shoot a gun? Um, it, it it lead to not just unreadiness, but but low morale. It's going to affect retention, which means people that want to stay in the military. It's going to affect recruiting. Do you realize that the seventy percent of American youth are unqualified for military service because of you know, they have a high school diploma, physical condition, whatever? The thirty percent that we're recruiting from, or or obesity. The thirty percent that we're recruiting from. Oh, another problem: lack of fitness is largely a group of very patriotic, very conservative young people. Mm -hmm. Many of them from military families like your own, right? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, many of them are children of, of, of the military. So, you know, it's not this notion of, you know, we're, we're taking, you know, kids off the street who the judge says go in their military or go to jail or something. You have to be highly qualified to get in the military. And, and it's very competitive. But they're going to just go get jobs in other places. I, we are in for a train wreck. And, and when you pair this with what the Biden administration is doing in terms of investing in the military, which, again, looks very much like the Carter years. I mean, their proposed budget doesn't even account for inflation, which means that the military is buying power. It actually decline. And when you look at what they want to spend stuff on in the military, it's on climate change and all other kinds of wacky things that have nothing to do with war fighting. So when you have less resources, less of a sense of mission, and a lot of this ludicrous junk going around, people are not going to join and people are not going to stay. Um, and which, and which what ultimately are you sending dis- to China and Russia yeah, and Iran? Exactly. And again, we'll come to China in just a moment, Jim. But one last piece on this, because it's so important to talk to somebody like yourself who has a deep understanding of and appreciation for what for most of us in civilian life, at least, is a highly intangible, if ill-understood, phenomenon known as the culture of the military. And, and you mentioned this a moment ago, just in passing, but drill down, if you would, on a little bit on what it does to confidence in the leadership in in the the rule of law in the military for that matter the the command structure if as seems now to be the intent of the congress as well as the administration um in cases of uh, sexual misconduct or rape and that sort of thing at least and maybe other crimes um the uh, the commanders are no longer going to be responsible for the investigations and proper prosecutions yeah well look i i understand the frustration I- I don't understand the sexual violence. This is a persistent problem in the military. I was in the military for 25 years. I had women under my command. We had ne- we'd never had issues like this. I don't know why why this happens in the military. I really don't. Um, and and I and I and I put the responsibility clearly on commanders to deal with this. But essentially, what they what they're saying, well, nothing's really working. So what they're going to do is take the responsibility away from the commanders and give it to lawyers. Which isn't going to make things better. As a matter of fact, it's much more likely to make things worse. Um, lawyers are likely to just charge everybody, regardless of the merits of the case or not, and and most of those cases are likely get dismissed. Which means it's, it's and and victims will actually likely not get better service. So it's actually going to make things worse. And they're doing it out of frustration. Well, nothing's working, so we're going to try this. But it's going to make things worse. Everybody I've talked to that really knows how this works says it's going to make things worse. But here's the problem: is your problem is your military leaders. Get rid of them and get people that will do the job. That's what we should be doing. And and I think across the board, you know, it seems this is reflective of a generation. I, I don't know what they were doing, but but these got these men and women. They are not equipped to lead our young men and women in service, and we need to get rid of them because because when you have somebody like Austin who is retired now, but he's the, the Secretary of Defense and the chairman. These guys have been around for forty years, and their leadership is pathetic. We, we did something wrong there. I deferred this as long as I can stand it. Um, you've alluded to great power competition. You've alluded to China in particular. Um, there are uh, colleagues of ours who follow closely what the Chinese Communist Party is up to, who are persuaded that it seems poised now, uh, not just in terms of capabilities, but in terms of intention, 
or I should say, not just in terms of intentions, but in terms of actual capabilities to go to war in the near future, possibly over Taiwan. Uh, that seems most likely. But on the other hand, you know, they may have others in mind, including us, uh, in order to accomplish that objective of uh, conquering Taiwan at last. What's your reading on the state of uh, the threat from China at the moment, especially against the backdrop of what you've said with respect to our own forces, readiness and capabilities? Yeah. Well, I, I think I have you know, a little different assessment. I don't think the Chinese strategy has changed, which is China wants to win without fighting. I mean, they don't want to have a, a direct military confrontation in the United States, because even if they win, that would be debilitating to both sides. What they want to do is to win by bullying, cajoling, convincing, intimidating us to do nothing and just let them expand and essentially for free. Uh, I, I think they're happy to continue to do that as long as it's successful for them. And, and what I what I worry about how we would get into a military conflict is if they so believe that the United States was a paper tiger, that they would just take that last step and do it militarily. So to me is if you want, if you want a military conflict, do exactly what we're doing, appear weak, that will actually embolden and enable them. And it might, might lead them to take a risk that they might not otherwise have. have. Jim, China is uh, widely expected to be a beneficiary of the pullout of the United States from Afghanistan. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on how that might actually sort, but but let's start with, um, as the co-author of a series of books about the, the long war, um, talk a bit about this idea that we can end unilaterally an endless war on terms other than effectively, if not de facto, the surrender. Of our position. Well, I, you know, I think this endless war rhetoric has, has become a, almost a term without meaning. Look, you know, President Trump said we shouldn't have military forces where we don't need them. Nobody disagrees with that. That makes absolute sense. But the president also, I think, largely stuck to a traditional uh, framework of what are America's vital in- interests, and I will do what I need to do to defend that. And I, and I think Afghanistan was included in that. I, I, you know, in contrast, I think the Biden administration has completely ignored um, our interests in Afghanistan. We don't want it to become another, you know, Disney World for for terrorists the way it was before, or the way Syria was or Libya was. That's not in our interest, and we want a stable Afghanistan because that makes the region stable which is good for our partner, India, which, and we need India to focus on, on China. So we, we have interests in, in Afghanistan. They don't go away simply because we walk away. It was not an endless war. Americans were not fighting and dying in Afghanistan. The Afghans are fighting, and they're still fighting, and they didn't stop fighting because we left. Um, we were spending less uh, in a year than we used to spend in a week under Obama. Americans weren't dying. We were doing advice and support. The numbers were very small, actually smaller, smaller numbers than there are many countries we have in the world. We took away all our eyes and ears, right? So we now, we're now, it's, now that part of the world is literally a blank spot for us because we have no presence there um, to really know what's going on. So what did Biden actually accomplish? He, he made us more vulnerable. Our interests are the same. How is does that add up to anything that's not stupid? I, I, I don't get that. So, he's, of course, he's not ending endless wars. Um, he's literally withdrawing from the stage. But, you know, just generally, this is what we, we're getting at, which is essentially a replay of Obama's foreign policy, which is largely a policy of disengagement and ignorance, emboldening and appeasing your enemies 
walking away and hoping everything doesn't burn down like it did in Benghazi. That's their plan. Abandoning your friends is a formula for having a lot more enemies and a lot fewer friends. And and Jim, I, I think to that last point, it's it's so critical because it would be bad enough if all you said were true about Afghanistan and uh, it reverting, as you say, aptly and, and colorfully to a Disneyland for terrorists. It will be not just the Taliban. It will be al-Qaeda. It will be the Islamic State. But more to the point, it will be emboldening every adversary of this country, most especially, obviously, the Sharia supremacist ones. Uh, if this plays out uh, as as clearly they expect it will to their profound advantage in that country, and and from just a propaganda point of view, as a as a massive defeat of the United States as Vietnam was. Oh, and we've already seen it. I mean, look at Iran. I mean, the, the administration immediately started capitulating to Iran. What's, what have the Iranians done? One, they've become more aggressive. And two, they've actually increased their demands of the United States. They, they don't even actually want to let the United States back into the Iran deal unless the United States makes even more concessions. So they sense weakness. The Russians sense weakness. The Chinese sense weak, weakness. And it's not just, I mean, you know, China's a good example. Of, you know, people will say, well, look, some of our policies are fine. We have the same policy on Taiwan, policy on Hong Kong, same policy on the Uyghurs, all of which is true. But look at the underlying fundamentals underneath that. Um, this administration's not investing in defense. They're not putting energy into the programs that will actually scare the Chinese. They're doing the opposite. They're doing the opposite with the Russians and with the Iranians and even with the Cubans. What do they want to do? And you're going to, I know you're going to talk about this in your next segment. But their, their impulse is to go back to Obama's policies and appease the Cuban government as a way to dealing with the situation in Cuba. None of this is going to work. And just lastly, and, and you're right, we will talk more with Joseph Humeyer in a moment uh, about Cuba. But I, I did want to get your take on it. Uh, you've uh, written at Heritage about uh, why freedom will find a way in Cuba. And I, I need to be bucked up here because it doesn't seem like that's in the cards at the moment. And and you recommended a couple of sort of takeaways from all of this, including the idea that uh, socialism stinks, as you put it. Um, give us just a quick bite on, on that, if you will. Oh, look, I mean, if, if we take nothing else away from this, this is a time for a real serious conversation about what the ideology of socialism and communism is really all about. Because we, we do have people in this country that are enamored with this utopian idea, including politicians and young people. But they have to whether it's critical race theory, which actually also happens to be a Marxist doctrine, or what's actually put into practice in Cuba or was in practice in the Soviet Union or practice in China today. These are power ideologies. These are not ideologies that are designed to improve people's lives. They're, they're ideologies that are designed for people to take over. And, when, and then when they take over, they use the system to ensure that they always retain power. There's no difference between fascism and socialism and communism. They're all instruments of power and uh, not of good. And there is no altruism there. And, and Cuba is a case study of that. I'm fearful that uh, Peru may be next. We'll again talk about that with Joseph Umar, but I hope we might visit with you about that in the near future. Jim Carafano, thank you so much for giving generously of your time today and for all the work you do at the Heritage Foundation these days and for all that you've done in the uniform among other places in the past. Keep it up, my friend, and we will come back to us again soon, if you will. Joseph Humeyer on Latin America and more. Right after this. 